0: You see, I think one of the mistakes we make is that we take the numbers of ideas as an indicator of creativity. Right, right, right. And very often, all you need is to have one good idea. Friction is a huge psychological
1: burden. <laughs> Without friction, we would not have fire and we would not have sparks. I got to get a knife. night. <laughs> I got to hide it. They oh, end up spending a lot of time ruminating. Hi, I'm Bob Sutton. I'm an organizational psychologist and Stanford professor, and this is The Friction Podcast. On today's episode, we're joined by Henning Pizunka. Henning is an assistant professor at INSEAD in France, and an alumni of Stanford's Department of Management Science and Engineering. Henning is a prolific and very sharp researcher. We invited him to the podcast because his research challenges the way many of us think about brainstorming and shows how fewer ideas can actually help organizations focus to go faster and to go farther. When you think of friction, organizational friction, what words come to mind? How would you define it? Well, the, the first word which comes to
0: mind is organizational waste. Ooh. Right? How much time and effort kind of people in organizations devote to things that doesn't help them or the organization in any way? So, one example of, of organizational waste that I've observed is that sometimes you have these cat fights within organizations. Uh-huh. Right. So uh, sometimes this can be healthy competition, but it can actually turn into conflict where uh-huh. people start sabotaging each other, hindering one another and hindering the organization.
1: So, let's talk about organizational waste and uh do you want to talk about your Formula 1 paper? That's like a fascinating paper. So the
0: the paper basically tries to examine why do you sometimes see these collisions? And at first sight, you might think of these collisions between Formula One drivers, right? When two Formula One cars hit one another, simply as some kind of random event or as an accident or Uh twos are just kind of very close in space. And we had a hunch that there might actually be some, yeah, systematic behind those patterns. And the the hunch we had built on a book by the late Roger Gould, a Chicago Uh sociologist, And the idea was that you have two actors which are status ambiguous. So it's unclear who of the two has Ah. higher status. And Ah. that's a
1: very uncomfortable state to be in, right? So it's like you got two cats fighting for dominance, sort of.
0: Right. I like your cat analogy. The favorite analogy we used is people running to the same bathroom. (laughs) So if you actually have, you see, if I and the dean run to the same bathroom, Uh It's very clear who's gonna to defer to whom, right? <laughs> I let the dean go to the bathroom first. However, if the status is a little bit unclear, right? right. Me and another
1: assistant professor running to the same bathroom, we might just collide, right? So, you talked, you looked at collisions that were bad enough that people couldn't finish, right? These weren't just little bumps. So,
0: we only looked at race ending collisions. Okay. The criterion we used was that at least one car of the two involved in the collision does not finish the race. So, this must have a sufficient power where it's actually dangerous for the people okay. and the material involved. Yeah. So, what we found is if two drivers are status ambiguous mm-hmm. or they are structurally equivalent that means they have beaten the same kind of people and they have been beaten by the same kind of people, Mm -hmm. then they have a higher tendency to collide with one another. So these drivers, you can actually isolate and see they are more likely to collide with one another.
1: So you can kind of see why they do it, but it's bad for everybody involved, right? Everybody suffers. It's bad for the two
0: drivers, it's bad for everyone involved, it's horrible for the health of the drivers, material gets destroyed... Yeah, thinking about organizational waste, there you have it.
1: In this situation, it honestly seems especially stupid. <laughs> I, I I mean it's really clearly stupid because you're just you're destroying hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of equipment. You're 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 getting rid of the opportunity to get um incentive for winning. You can lose your sponsor. Why do they do it anyways?
0: Well, you see, I I think the the drivers on that moment are incredibly involved and it really bothers them it really bothers them to give in to somebody where the status is already not clear and where they are competing for status. You just don't want to give in in such so a So you
1: just smash into them and you just can't help yourself.
0: And then there can be a little bit almost like a misunderstanding or just enough an unwillingness to give up. right? So think back to the bathroom example. Uh, we are running to the bathroom, it's not as if I want to run into you, right. but I might just not be
1: willing to give up. So, I mean, from an organizational friction standpoint and get it, and thinking about it in more subtle ways, what it reminds me of, although it's so much more spectacular because you, you have a collision and, and it's, it's exciting, but in organizations a lot of times you have situations where units that actually need to cooperate, you'll have people who build little fiefdoms and compete against one another. So let's talk about how you would get rid of friction. So let's start with the formula one. So if you wanted to change the incentives or the design to get rid of the waste? Do you have any ideas how you might change things? So it turns out if you
0: actually make clear to people that something bigger is on the line, then they are less focused on these kind of conflicts. The other thing you can do is that you actually kind of point people to other ways how they are different. So more similar actors who are more similar in terms of age uh-huh. have a, are more inclined to run into these conflicts. The moment you're competing, you should be aware, oh, I am inclined to uh-huh. be very aggressive as well as the people around me are very inclined to
1: be very aggressive. So, so you're in a situation you, you realize it's going to bring out bad behavior. Essentially. Right, so you're basically it. Okay, well that's interesting. Because from a leadership standpoint... To me, you're implying that there's two different things you can do. One is you can emphasize the common goal and how we're all in it together and all that sort of stuff, so that's sort of the kumbaya. But the other thing they're doing, since leaders have authority, and, and I'd imagine some regulatory agencies have authority in racing, is that they are firing and giving warnings and demotions to people who engage in destructive internal competition. So you see, I'm not sure if I, if I fully agree with the kumbaya line. Uh-huh. Because because
0: the fact that it's just kind of that you say like kumbaya does not mean that everybody suddenly is kumbaya, in a right. in a funny way it can almost be the opposite. If you say like, listen, the house is really burning. Mm-hmm. This is not the time to have status fights. Then the inclination is much much more to un- to forego those fights because if you feel that the that the life of the company or the survival of the company is on the line, okay, then it would be terribly inappropriate. To suddenly kind of have status fights. So
1: that's that. So you find a common enemy. Outgroup threat breeds in group solidarity. So that's, that's a good kind of kumbaya, because we're all going to die if we don't get together and fight. Right. So Henning is here visiting Stafford, and actually, he's going to present this paper to a group of scholars tomorrow, right? That's correct, yeah. So
0: so the paper is a really interesting kind of history of emergence. Uh-huh. Um, I had written one paper on crowdsourcing where we discussed why do some organizations succeed in raising ideas and why do most organizations fail. And then we had written up a follow-up paper in if you succeed in accumulating ideas, which one you should select. And on a sunny day on Stanford campus, I actually kind of saw David Kelly. Um, of IDEO fame. Of IDEO fame. And in D and, school fame. Right. Sitting there munching his salad. And I thought, this is my once-in-a-lifetime chance to talk with David Kelly about my research. <laughs> So I directly went to David Kelly and tell him about these two papers and say, like, David, um, I hope I don't disturb you. Here are two papers I've written. Um, one about how you raise ideas uh-huh. and one how you select ideas. And in a very kind way, David basically said, you know, Henning, I know this very, fairly, fairly well. I know how to raise ideas and I know how to select ideas. Uh-huh. So I'm not particularly interested. <laughs> and so, so I go to David and say, like, Okay, what are you interested in?
1: What can I learn from you?
0: <laughs> right. And David said, I'm really interested in how you reject ideas. Huh? Because the way he pointed out, he had every day ten people coming to him with very good ideas. And he needed to tell nine people no. Huh. But he needed to have the same people come back. The next day, with another set of good ideas. You never heard
1: of He's terrible at saying no, too, so this is really interesting.
0: And, and so, that you see, and, and there was my question, right? How do you deal with ideas that, that you do not respond to? There's another, how should I say, this is another, um, you will enjoy this, another encounter I
1: had with, I talked with Jim March about the paper. Uh-huh. Jim March is, is a retired professor on campus, possibly the most um, famous living organizational theorist. And Jim March
0: told me this wonderful anecdote he experienced with his son. So he was looking at a cabin fire together with his son, uh-huh. and his son said the following, "Looked at the fire is so beautiful, I wonder how it tastes. <laughs> and you see, this is, of course, I have a nine-month-old son sitting at home, and this is, of course, an extremely scary idea. Yeah, this, yeah they will taste a fire, that's true. <laughs> but the idea is, at first, you see, it's kind of an interesting idea right you see like how would fire actually taste and so the the challenge the way jim described it was like that he said like you know i don't want you to do that idea but right. i want to have more of those kind of ideas right and so so i got very interested in this problem how can you say no to an idea but actually foster the creativity and maintain the relationship with an individual
1: so well the jim the march fire ones really a classic idea to reject because it's it's a terrible idea, but it might lead to insights that are great. Right. Like uh, I don't know, smoke flavored food with barbecue. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. But but you see, this is how it often starts. But you start off with one of
0: one idea which might be a little bit weird. But if you tuned it a little bit, right. But so you see, the precondition for that is that you keep the conversation going. And most uh, conversations which start fail initially, right if a date fails a second date doesn't happen right, right. so you need to have a way even if the first conversation or the first interaction did not go the way you had hoped for that you kind of keep, that you keep on going in some way
1: so with with that in mind what are some of your main findings about uh, how to keep such a system going
0: so the problem is what most managers do is they don't say anything because they don't want to offend anyone and they want to keep the option yep. open to work on the idea at some point. So you get they get these ideas and basically just nod and don't do anything. In dating, you call this ghosting, right? If, however, you do reject, it has a very positive effect on people's tendency to submit more ideas. Because what a rejection does, even if a rejection is uh-huh. just purely no, you don't even give an explanation, all you say like, no, I'm not going to do it, it sends a signal to the person who has submitted the ideas that you actually have listened to the ideas and that you care. Of course, if you take the time to explain why you don't do it, the effect is even bigger. The person is even more likely. Because you see, Mm -hmm. if you take the time to explain somebody why you don't work on an idea, in that moment you really invest in the relationship. Because you have already decided that you're not going to work on the idea. So every Mm. second or minute you invest in this, you really devote to the relationship. The effect which we found most surprising is if you reject somebody in the same linguistic style Mm -hmm. as that person has reached out to you, it has an enormous effect on the person's tendency to continue to interact with
1: you. So your model is, you at least say no, and an even better one would be to have a discussion about
0: why? The key thing what you need to do is you need to form a relationship. You maintain that interaction despite saying no to the idea. The other big thing we found in terms of kind of friction and organizational ways is that most organizations for at least among those who succeed actually end up raising way too many ideas. So the idea is that they say, Ah. Hey, We want to be creative, so we are going to generate an enormous amount of ideas. So they do this, you you see, you can see this in crowdsourcing, but you can also do this in brainstorming and so on, right? Very often what organizations try to do is they maximize the number of ideas which they get in the beginning. And what organizations, what we found, tend to neglect is that once all these ideas are generated, they actually need to select from those ideas. Right, right. So they're sitting on all these ideas which they've generated and then they run out of capacity in the follow-up selection stage. Suddenly you don't have enough time to really carefully consider Uh each of those ideas. And what then happens is that you then work on those ideas which you basically already know, which are very familiar to you. So the very fact that Uh you create a lot of ideas narrows your attention the moment you need to select those ideas. You run out of cognitive capacity. And, and, then and, you do and this. so you
1: get tired and you go to what the tried and true is. That's, so, how, so how do you navigate around that dilemma? So a very simple way is you simply, you simply generate less
0: ideas. Rather kind of in investing uh, time and in saying like, hey, let's have a thousand ideas. You could just say, okay, we're just going to want to have 10 or 100 ideas, uh-huh. right? So
1: there's no need to have thousands of ideas. So, so this is just from, I mean, in the old days watching product development, sometimes some of the coolest teams did the worst work because they would just get, I remember one that they did a bunch of laptop uh, prototypes for a, a famous computer maker. And it was so cool because they did, the, uh, the, the IDEO Monday morning meeting, they had, 20 prototypes of every crazy kind of laptop, but they put so much energy into it that they ran out of money and no laptop ever got developed by the company because they just bombarded them with too many different choices.
0: You see, I think one of the mistakes we make is that we take the numbers of ideas as an indicator of creativity. Right, right, right. And that is something you really don't want to do. What the numbers of creative, bizarrely, what can happen is that having more ideas can actually end- make you less creative. Very often, all you need is to have one good idea.
1: Well, so this is actually um, heresy if you look at research on the effectiveness of brainstorming groups. The main thing that psychologists use is the number of ideas that the groups develop. So, so you're taking down one of my um, favorite bad academic literature. So, thank you. Right. You
0: have this beautiful book, um, weird ideas that work. But just having a getting a weird idea is not enough. No, it's, right? it is not enough. Right, you actually need to look at this weird idea and say, okay. Why and how could this weird idea work? But the reason why most weird ideas get missed is exactly because they are weird, right? But
1: so you need to take the necessary time for that. I love this example because um one of the things that we think a lot about friction are time. when do you hit the brakes and when do you hit the gas? And what you're saying is if is at least for most companies that there's a certain percentage, let's just make up ten percent. That if they want to hedge their bets and come up with something strange so they don't get disrupted, to use that horrible word, by a competitor. And if you're going to do that, you're going to have to realize you're going to see things that upset you, things that take longer to develop. And it is interesting. So so one one of my uh, friends and kind of a hero was a woman named Claudia Kochka. She led the design thinking movement at Procter & Gamble. And they figured out something about their uh, stage gate system at Procter & Gamble which was that if something was new and creative, it would get killed or destroyed by the stage gate system because it was too weird. And if it was incremental, it would just shoot right through. And, and the famous one is Crest White Strips, which is now a huge product. This, it took something like five or six years to get through the system because it was too weird. And, and to her point, they kind of figured out that uh, they needed a different system for things that weren't incremental products, things that were a fundamental change in, in some product line. If you had a magic wand and you could do one thing to every organization to get them to slow down, to make something harder to do, what would it be? I think it should be way
0: harder to start certain things.
1: Ooh! For example?
0: We're always talking about how do you kind of lower entry barriers, but you see the problem is really not that not enough stuff gets started. Uh The problem is that not enough stuff gets finished. (laughs) Right? So if you actually, you see, I, I almost think there might be like an opposite effect. Imagine you would say yeah. like, we kind of increase the price a little bit for uh-huh. starting stuff, right? Then you would be much more careful about starting stuff. And then you say like, hey, I actually devoted myself. So you see, I put a certain commitment down here to start this. Now I'm going to think that through, right? You see, I'm not saying like, you see, there should not be like, a, I'm not. of course, you need to be able to resolve such a commitment right. and stuff like this. But I think sometimes increasing the cost of starting stuff, huh. Actually, makes you focus much more.
1: I, I like that. That's a great constraint.
0: You see, Kathleen Eisenhardt. I remember she she was an academic conference and she said to the audience, "Everybody in this room has has the talent to start a scientific paper. <laughs> 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 I'm not sure how many are able to finish one, right? And and I always that's tough love, man. <laughs> <laughs> and but I always, you see, I always loved this saying because it kind of it makes very evident, right, that the very first stage of a process uh, is the easy one. Right. Be, before I entered academia, I had a I had a small web design company, and we always differentiated work into: Are you actually doing real work, or are you just doing work which feels good but will actually <laughs> require a lot of follow up? Right, right, work. right, right, right. Right. And you see, everybody's like, you see, we had all these business development managers who would be like, "Oh, I'm kind of." filling up the first part of the sales funnel and like, okay, who's going to see those leads through the whole right. funnel? Oh, yeah, probably no one. Okay, then please stop working on the first part of the funnel, right? If nobody takes the football and kind of leads this the whole way through, then there's no
1: point actually in generating a lot of leads in the beginning. So a lot of what we're talking about is, is essentially symbolic entertaining activity that leads to nothing, which, which is really fun in the short term and leads and in the long term leads everybody discouraged and depressed and actually broke too. True. <laughs> <laughs> is that dark enough? Henning, it's been a delight to have you. Boy, have you got some crazy ideas and they're evidence based. So it's a delight. And and thank you so much.
0: Thank you so much, Bob.
1: I hope that you'll take two lessons from Henning's interview. First, investing in relationships almost always pays off. Second, saying no to an idea is better than saying nothing at all. We may fear rejecting another person's idea in order to avoid conflict, but this fear is often counterproductive. Communicating your reasons for saying no can build and strengthen relationships with both your customers and your employees. Please spread the word about the Friction Podcast. Rate and review us on iTunes and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues, your family, and even your therapists. On the next episode, we'll be joined by my friend and colleague, Kathy Eisenhart. Kathy is one of the leading researchers on organizational strategy, and Kathy is going to talk about how to reduce friction by adding and inventing simple rules. And now for the final tangent.
0: An organization I've always been fascinated, and I, I teach the corresponding case, is Wolf. Wolf is a video gaming company. Uh-huh. And the very idea is that it's basically an internal market where people have an enormous freedom which kind of projects they actually work okay. on okay, so everybody self commits and can also resolve this commitment if they do not want to work on a project anymore and so what you basically end up having is like an internal marketplace of employees where people devote their time to the most promising to the most right. promising project so It's a very nice effect if you think about it. The moment a project is not performing, it immediately kind of falls apart, right? Just because nobody Mm. wants to work on it. Whereas things which actually go really well automatically scale because you easily attract more people.
1: We can't do this without you. Tell us what's driving you crazy and what are you doing to make life better in your organization, for yourself and for the people that you work with. Please send us your friction stories, tips and tricks. We'd love to hear from you via Twitter at eCorner, or please send us an email at stvp-ecorner at stanford.edu. The Friction Podcast is a Stanford eCorner original series brought to you by Stanford Technology Ventures Program and Designing Organizational Change. Friction is produced by Rachel Jilkowski and Ali Rico. Jake Smith and Stice Studios are our editor and audio engineers. Susie Allen and Victoria Johnson are our writing and marketing team. Danielle Stusi is our designer and digital products manager. And I'm Bob Sutton. Thanks for joining us. This is the Friction Podcast.